0: Om asato ma sadgamaya tamaso ma jyotirgamaya mrityor ma om shanti 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 om lead us from the unreal to the real Lead us from darkness unto light. Lead us from death to immortality. Oh, peace, peace, peace. So, we are speaking about the four yogas. The one we are going to take up now is called Raja Yoga, it is basically the path of meditation. The Raja Yogi says um, that it's not a question of belief. It's not a question of believing something. It's a question of experience. Swami Vivekananda said, religion is realization. Religion is not giving your assent to a set of doctrines, not giving your commitment to something that you have been taught, but actually practicing and experiencing something. You know it it's real only when you have experienced it. This is where Sri Ramakrishna and Swami Vivekananda are yogis, power excellence. You see, it is basically for both of them, a drive towards experience. Sri Ramakrishna, he, would, he approached the Kali t- temple, the image of Kali as, are you real or are you just an image? Is there some reality behind this? Can I experience that? Can I see the Divine Mother? So that was his burning quest. And how did Vivekananda, Narendranath become Vivekananda? He went around asking, have you seen God? The notable intellectuals and teachers of his time in Calcutta. Sir, have you seen God? And finally he came to Sri Ramakrishna where he got an answer which satisfied him. He said, yes, I have seen God. Just as I see you, in fact even more clearly... And you too can see God. Later Vivekananda was to come to this country and say that if somebody says to you that I have seen God but you cannot and you must follow me, you must believe me, do not follow such a person. But if somebody says I have seen and you can too, then you can follow such a person. So this method of experience, Swami Vivekananda said, if there is God, I must be able to see God. If I have an immortal soul, I must feel it. Through this path of seeking experience, religion is something to be experienced. Again, notice that it is not absolutely a new thing. It's more or less was taken for granted and understood in India for eons together. That religion is not ultimately meant for, just for belief. Because you have the example of so many saints, generation after generation, who who have actually had vision of God whatever the tradition is that they have seen God um, Mirabai saw Krishna actually you have visions of God we are talking about even the thieves saw Rama and Lakshmana you see the, protecting the house of the saints Tulsidas so vision of God these mystical experiences these you will find at, at not only throughout the history of Hinduism, but in every religion. At the core of religion, you will find mystics, saints, who claim not that they believe in something, who claim not that they have understood something, who claim that they have actually seen. And the path of yoga, Raja Yoga says, that's our goal. We must actually experience these realities. And for that there is a method, a set of psychophysical exercises which if you practice, you will realize. See, the paradigm in in the path of devotion is that God exists, you do not have faith in God, you do not believe in God, do not worship or surrender to God, that's the problem, and so the solution is faith in God. In this yoga, the Raja Yoga, the path of meditation, the paradigm is our minds are restless. And therefore, we do not see the truth. If the minds can be concentrated, focused, calmed, then we will see this truth for ourselves. We will we'll experience it. And we do not argue with experience. I mean, you might argue with somebody else's experience, but if you experience it to your satisfaction, then you will be satisfied personally. So it's the path of experience. And why we do not experience it right now? Because our minds are scattered, we are not focused, not concentrated and there are methods, specific methods to focus or concentrate our mind and then we will realize. And especially in the Eastern religions, but in all religions, but especially in Eastern religions, there are many, many such methods. These are methods of meditation. Especially religions like Buddhism and Jainism, um, they specialize in a variety of meditative methods. And in Hinduism, the uh, Patanjali Yoga Sutras, the Yoga philosophy, the Sankhya philosophy, especially the Yoga philosophy, it is it is a specialization on meditation. I sometimes joke that Advaita Vedanta is a composite which has borrowed uh, happily, we will say plagiarized, uh, happily from all the other schools for um, the concept of pure consciousness from Sankhya. That concept was already there in Sankhya. The techniques of meditation, Samadhi, from yoga, which we are going to study now, Patanjali's yoga. How to understand and interpret the Upanishads, which are central to Advaita Vedanta. From Purvam Imamsa, a school of philosophy which specialised in textual interpretation. And take all of that logic, argumentation, reasoning, from the Nyaya, the Indian school of logic, Take all of that and put Brahman on top of it and then get, put, it, put the label, Advaita Vedanta. But if you open it up, made in China, inside. <laughs> so, uh, meditation techniques have been freely taken from Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. In fact, the first textbook we had to read in Vedanta, it's called Vedanta Sara, as, as novices, by Sadhananda Yogendra. Vedanta Sara. So there, at the end, you will find the entirety of Patanjali Yoga Sutra, the techniques of Ashtanga Yoga. Yama, Niyama, Asana, Pranayama, Pratyahara, Dharana, Dhyanasama, all of it, just literally taken from Patanjali Yoga Sutra and put there, plugged in there, as um, the method of meditation. And you find them in in Buddhism, in Jainism, in all these methods. Um, The classic textbook of meditation the classic manual of meditation is the Patanjali Yoga Sutra and the classic translation modern translation of Patanjali Yoga Sutra was done in New York by Swami Vivekananda in 1895 uh, the first edition of Raja Yoga so that's part of our heritage too in the New York Vedanta Society in fact Karma Yoga the first edition New York a part of Jnana Yoga was first published from New York and uh, Bhakti Yoga, one of the earliest editions. The earliest edition was published from New York. All the four yogas from the Vedanta Society of New York. Um, Kar- the Karma Yoga was also published from London. And uh, Jnana Yoga was only partially published from New York. But anyway. Why am I saying it's the classic manual of meditation? Because there is some controversy. Whether actually the, the way we find the Patanjali Yoga Sutras today... Is it pre-Buddhistic or after the Buddha? But if you look at the Buddha's own teachings, his own record, he went to some teachers. After he renounced, he went up to the forest to seek enlightenment. He went to the teachers first. He went to the existing teachers of his time. He he has left behind records of at least two of them. Alara Kalama and uh, Uddalaka Ramaputta something. Name something like that. And he has rec- left behind some records. He was not satisfied with the teaching, but he has left behind some records of the teaching. And very clearly, when you listen to what he has said, they were Sankhian teachings. And uh, uh, some of the techniques of meditation, which he himself developed, but they clearly bear the imprint of yogic techniques. So, And we know from his own records that, from Buddhistic records, there were many yogis at that time. So this is pre-Buddhistic. The text itself may have may be post-Buddhistic, but may, maybe the text itself is also pre-Buddhistic. Techniques themselves are definitely pre-Buddhistic. So it is maybe the oldest existing uh, body of knowledge on meditation. Even now it's very popular, the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. So that's heavy stuff, that'll come a little later. But first, before we get into the Patanjali Yoga Sutras, I want to talk about something practical regarding meditation. Something that helped me and has helped many other people, I will share with you today. This is um, from Swami Ashokananda. There is a nice book, before, uh, this book is called uh, Meditation by the monks of the Ramakrishna order. It's a nice collection. It's a collection of essays. The first one in that series is Before You Sit in Meditation. Before You Sit in Meditation. See, meditation is very popular. Today it's so popular. But also universally acknowledged to be difficult. People say it's difficult. There's so many techniques of meditation across different traditions. Um, Today, it's a supermarket of techniques available to to us today. There is uh, the Buddhist Vipassana meditation um, which has been developed further into the modern mindfulness. Uh, It's a huge industry in USA now. Multi, I think many, multi-million or billion-dollar industry now. Uh, meditation, mindfulness meditation. It's taught in corporate offices. It's taught in um, in schools, in jails, and in in uh, in um, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, colleges and in the military. Everywhere uh, you find meditation. You sometimes find in corporate buildings meditation rooms. And uh, most of the thing you know, here is mindfulness meditation. There are techniques. the Tantrics have their own techniques of meditation, very sophisticated. The um, the uh, Kashmiri Shaivism has a wide range of very sophisticated techniques of meditation. One, one book, Vijnana Bhairava, details about 112 dharanas, which are basically techniques of meditation. And then you have... Um, um, the, the Tibetan Buddhists a variety of visualization techniques a variety of sophisticated meditation techniques uh, you have meditation techniques among the Vaishnavas visualization of the deity every devotional tradition in Hinduism has its what is what are called Dhyana st- uh, Stotras Dhyana Shlokas how to visualize the deity it is in fact from there that those um Iconography has come and images have been built from those uh, verses. Then you have, of course, the yogic techniques of Patanjali Yoga Sutras. The Jainas have um, their own body of meditation techniques. And I have heard a branch of Sikhism has its own special version of Kundalini Yoga. Uh, And so, you have a whole range of techniques. Beyond uh, India, you have... Meditation techniques, for example, the method, if you have read a very beautiful book called The Way of the Pilgrim, The Way of the Pilgrim, a Russian Russian Orthodox Church, so this uh, man is taught the Jesus prayer, the prayer of the heart, which he has to repeat, Lord Jesus have mercy upon me. And he repeats. And the book is very nice. If you read it, it's just like Mantra Japa. It is basically Mantra Japa. And this man, in a very simple way, throughout all the ups and downs of life, he goes on repeating that. His mind is always on that. And the experiences he gets, you will find it tarries closely with the experiences we talk about in Mantra Japa, which you have um, in our tradition. Uh, Sufi Islam has its own meditation techniques. So meditation is a worldwide phenomenon Many, many techniques are there Don't worry, I'm not going to start teaching technique after technique here But first, universally Before you sit in meditation There are certain things to be observed Which makes meditation If you do these things, meditation will become effective very soon Joyful, peaceful Without these things, meditation will always remain a kind of a struggle So what are these things? So I Amy mean, in that first essay uh, in that book collection, meditation by the monks of the Ramakrishna order, in that first essay, he gives ten points. Ten points. So I'll quickly share them with you before we go into the actual discussion on, on uh, the Patanjali Yoga Sutras. First, be regular in meditation. That means meditate daily. Be regular in meditation. Meditate daily. What is the practice of meditation? Just start. Just start. There is no good meditation, bad meditation to begin with. Just start. Do it. Meditation is practice, remember. It, no amount of reading or theory or Patanjali Yoga Sutras and no amount of commentaries if you have read all the books on meditation and not meditated, you have not advanced a single inch. But if you sit quietly morning and evening, at least for ten minutes, five minutes each, you have already begun. You have made the uh, made a start. So, regular regularity. Why regularity? Remember, meditation is to do with the mind. The mind is also a body. Just like the physical body, the mind is also a body. It is called the subtle body, sukshma sharira. You are not the mind, but you have a mind. And spirituality is basically in the mind. Now, why is what is the significance of uh, saying that it's a body? Body needs training. Body does not need information. Just like you want a fit body. If you have read all the uh, articles about healthy eating and exercise and uh, all the uh, news feeds and uh, books, will, you be, will the body become fit? Not at all. Maybe a little more sick than before, (laughs) after reading all so many books. But if you exercise every day in the morning without reading a single book, your body will begin to um, show the changes. Similarly, the mind, uh, it's a body, it's a subtle body. And body requires training, mind also requires training. Training is repetition. It's worth repeating that. Training is repetition. Training is not information. Training is not understanding. There was uh, this book, Happiness Hypothesis, Jonathan Haidt. Let me write down the name. It sounds like a typical self-help book, but it's actually quite a deep book. He is a a psychologist. He has written many other books nowadays to do with politics and all, psychology of politics, but that's different. But this was one of his early works, very interesting. Uh, He takes up the issue that so many good books are available now. If you go to Barnes and Nobles, self-help section, you know, so many. It's one of the biggest sections in Barnes and Nobles. And so many books. So if those books did any good, our lives would be transformed. So much wisdom, interesting in stories, inspiring stories, techniques. They're full of them. And they started long ago. Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. And <laughs> how to be a good public speaker. How to overcome tension. So many such books are available. And it's not it's not that they are useless. It's not that they what they contain is, is wrong. In many cases it's anecdotal, but may not be very rigorous. But still good advice and practical advice and useful advice. And yet why is our life our lives are not changing? People go and buy so many books and then within a few weeks they would have had many friends and influenced so many people. But why is it that lives are not changing? So he says, What is the problem? Jonathan Heidi takes up. He says that because we do not understand the model of our personality. It's like elephant and rider. He gives the elephant and rider uh, model. The rider, the Mahut, knows where he wants the elephant to go. He can read a map and he decides, I will go there. But he has no strength to make the elephant go there unless the elephant agrees to go there. elephant is much stronger than the Mahut. The Mahut can guide the elephant, but the elephant now wants to go there into the banana grove and eat bananas. Then the, the, the Mahut cannot do anything. Mahut is much too weak to pull the elephant to that side. Our intellect is like the Mahut. Intellect, buddhi, the intellect, understanding. You go to a seminar or a retreat on yoga and you get convinced meditation is great and I must start meditating. Get up early in the morning, like the Swami said, 5 o'clock in the morning or 4.30 and we start meditating. And morning when the alarm rings, you have to get up. And you don't feel like getting up. The body says, no, did you ask me? Did I sign up for your <laughs> silly program? No. Who signed up? Who was, in, who, entered, who was interested in the seminar and in the retreat? The intellect. Intellect says, yes, it's a great idea. But the body did not say it's a great idea. the body is like the elephant the body does not respond to like the elephant it does not respond to talks and seminars and papers and TED talk no not interested the intellect gets very excited and um, decides I will do these things to change my life now what does the body what does the elephant respond to training training how do uh, mouths make the elephant listen to them elephants are wild creatures they are trained they're trained to respond to certain commands. Similarly, to, to make it habitual. And any kind of habitual, any kind of training, it requires repetition and time. It does not. It's not enough to listen to something and understand it. And body can be trained to get up at 4 o'clock or 4.30 in the morning and make it easy and effortless. I know. I, when I became a monk uh, the first day, I used to be an early riser, riser in the hostel, which is a different thing altogether the monk told me that from tomorrow onwards, now you are a brahmachari, that means you are part of the order. From tomorrow onwards, you must get up early. I said, yes, I was the earliest riser in the hostel. Uh, Tell me when you want me to get up, 7.30, 7? (laughs) (laughs) Because all my friends used to get up at 9. So I get up at 7. And the monk laughed and he said, forget that 7, 7 7.30. You have to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, or 4.30. I said, 4.30, my God! (laughs) Swami Vivekananda made it a rule ring the bell the bell is still there in the main monastery it's, it's rung at 3.40 in the morning and you have to get up and it will politely keep ringing until you get up <laughs> and there is somebody whose duty it is to ring the bell once an enterprising I think uh, annoyed monk hit the bell hit the bell so that next morning the person whose duty it is the monk whose duty it is to ring the bell wouldn't find the bell so we could sleep a little more but that person was even more uh, enterprising he took his dish made of metal and a little bowl made of metal we all get, got a dish and a bowl so he, and he banged it making an awful clamor throughout. The, and he walked around the whole ministry banging it making everything, everybody up with that horrible noise yeah. training but once you do that for a week for a month for two months three months it's easy it becomes effortless and then you feel uneasy lying around in bed, laying around in bed after that. Especially if you're in a group. If you're in a group, if a hundred other young people are doing it, you can't be the, if 99 people have gone away and the last hundred person lying on the bed, it's too much peer pressure. You have to get up and be up and doing. So, training. Body requires training. The knowledge Intellect, the body requires training. Why? He has given very interesting uh, points. He says, for example, our, n- the gut and certain other parts of the body, they are almost an autonomous intelligence. They have a bunches of nerves there. And so they have a kind of inner decision making regarding food and other sense pleasures that might override your Intellect. They might exert a pull. and So they have to be trained. One another reason why I like this book was, he actually went to India to a small town, Bhuvaneshwar, where I grew up as a kid. He writes there. I was surprised. He said he went there to the temples, the Lingaraj temple, the Shiva temple there, and he interviewed the Brahmin priests there. Before they performed the rituals and after, he's a psychologist, before they performed the rituals and after they performed the rituals which are traditional Hindu temple rituals. And the questions he asked, like the psychologist, a battery of questions will be there, that is like a schedule they will give. He says the scores were wildly different. How a person feels after performing these rituals is a and responds to situations in life, questions is quite different from how the person responds before or at a distance from these rituals. Of course, he goes on and says, the rituals are deeply connected to the culture. You take a bath and it's called Bindu Sagar there in, uh, near the temple. They would take a bath there. You feel chant the mantras. Then you feel sort of purified and holy satvik. Go to the temple to perform the rituals. Say, will, it, will it work if I go and take a dip in the Mississippi and then... No, you have to have that cultural background. It has to have that associated bunch of meanings for you. Then only it works. Uh, So, but it does work It has an effect on the mind Okay So that's why be regular That's number one I had a friend I remember in the um, When I was a student He was very spiritual And he used to live in the room next to mine And uh, I got In fact some good books from him He gave me some good books on spirituality you know, you have heard of Eknath Ishwaran who lived in San Francisco. He wrote very nice books. Have you met him? Sir? You have met him? He has books, yes. So I was introduced to his books by this, uh, this boy. Now one thing which I noticed, he would meditate when the mood took him. So days would go by he's not meditating. Sometimes he would feel like meditating and he would meditate more than me. But I had already taken Mantra Diksha and one of the re- the rules is daily you have to meditate, morning and evening, even if it is mechanical. Which is better? He would say, no, this mechanical meditation does not a- appeal to me. If I don't feel like meditating, how can I meditate? When I feel like meditating, I will meditate. No. Big trick of the mind. It's like the elephant saying, I will be trained when I feel like training. If I don't feel like training, you can't train me. Then the elephant will never be trained. No amount of training will work. If I say, I will get up only when four o'clock. Some days when I have the mood, I will get up at four o'clock. That mood will become rarer and rarer. You will (laughs) see. So regular meditation, daily you must meditate. Uh, Then the second point he says, have a fixed time for meditation. Not only daily, but have a fixed time as far as possible. I know people are busy, so the schedules, but as far as possible. And Swami Ashoka recommends at least twice a day. Thrice if possible, if not, at least twice a day. Once, of course, but at least twice a day. Morning and evening. And he says there are special times which are suitable for meditation. Best time is always you get up from bed, fresh. The previous day's impressions have been cleared off. You are rested. Use that time for meditation. When the world is quiet. There are beautiful descriptions of Swami Vivekananda in New York. Um, how he would always be in a meditative mood sometimes he would sit quietly and become so absorbed people would be waiting for him to give the talk they would sit for meditation they thought maybe 5 minutes 10 minutes 15 minutes 30 minutes 40 minutes 1 hour they, they would slowly without, they would not dare to disturb him they would slowly get up and walk away and he would open his eyes and find the room empty <laughs> everybody is gone and he actually became embarrassed about these things he taught the american disciples just like sri ramakrishna you see the continuity there certain mantras that if you see me sitting in meditation like that repeat it into my ears and i'll come back to awareness he would try to stop his mind from going into deep meditation just the opposite one. we try we try to go into deep meditation you try to stop his mind from going into deep meditation at all hours but especially, the beautiful description, when that busy city, even in Manhattan, a city that never sleeps, when it, it finally went to sleep, very early in the morning, everybody, this whole city is quiet. Vivekananda would be immersed in deep meditation. At some times, students would walk into a room and suddenly find him sitting there and they, they began to recognize that inward mood. They would quietly walk out without disturbing him. At e- as evening fell upon the city as night deepened on the city this is Vivekananda would remain immersed in samadhi in the little room meditative mood if we cannot do that at least twice a day and early morning is good and evening in India the, the yogis they felt that there are certain times in the day when night changes into morning uh, dawn When noontime, there are inflection points, so to say. They are called sandhi. Sandhi, twilight, when afternoon changes into evening. And then midnight, these are good times for meditation. I remember when, um, as in the hospital, I was once a patient, as a young monk, and there was another much, much more old monk who had a cataract operation being done. He was in the next bed. And um, because I was young and I was in the hospital for a pretty long time, so you're lying down. You don't feel like sleeping after some time. So sometimes I would stay awake whole night. And I, I watched when that monk thought everybody else has gone to sleep. He would get up on his bed. And then he had a little tin box. I always wondered what was in it. He would open the box at night when everybody was asleep. And that box had pictures of Thakurma and Swamiji. <laughs> little pictures. He would take it out and he would put it and then in front of the bed. He would sit in meditation for hours and hours. But well before dawn, before anybody stirred in the hospital, he would quietly close the box and go to bed. So I told him a few days later, Maharaj, Swami, I know what you are doing at night. And the Swami burst out in laughter, and he, he said in Bengali, and he, what he said was, Oh, I am a, I am a rakshasa, a demon. Demons come out at night. <laughs> yeah. Amito Nishachar. Nishachar means uh, the one who walks in the night, a, a, a demon or... Uh. Night, yes. I don't know, there's something about the time. What Ji says is that, generally what we read is that nature is quiet at that time. There is a certain quietness that comes upon nature at times. Um, I don't know how true it is in modern cities in the world, but definitely, in a, just imagine a, a small Indian town, very early in the morning, of course quiet, and afternoon, when it changes into the hot Indian afternoon, it quietens down a little. And then evening... As the sky reddens and the the sun sets uh, and the darkness falls, again a quietness comes on the world. So nature is quiet. There's something in the patterns in the body also that at these times, uh, it is conducive to meditation, conducive to inwardness. Ah, So that's another thing. There's um, Swami Brahmananda used to say and Sri Ramakrishna also. Different places, especially holy places, pilgrimage places, at different times, there is um, a special spiritual vibration. So he identified different times Belurmat, much to my annoyance, it's at four o'clock in the morning, so it's um, <laughs> if you want to catch that time, the monks were uncompromising. We would groan that it's hot and sweaty, and you don't get hardly get enough sleep at night. you have to get up at three forty in the morning. I still remember our very senior Swami or mentor saying, "No, that one is we cannot compromise on that." But you feel sleepy in the next day, fine, you can sleep, but you have to get up at three forty in the morning and meditate at four, four to five, or almost till six. Sometimes you can meditate. Suppose hey, I can't work properly after that, and so whatever you can do after that is acceptable to us. But that one is you have to get up. <laughs> We don't want your efficiency afterwards. We want you to get up and meditate at that time. It's just a way of pushing the mind because mind is tricky, you know. Then, I think he said, Puri is probably in afternoon. Um, Banaras is midnight, I think, midnight. Vrindavan also, I think, probably midnight. The different spiritual centers have a special vibration. They have the vibration throughout the day. But at special times, also special times special puja times, you will find or the holy days in the year which are regarded as sacred times at that time you will find a special vibration where large numbers of be- uh, human beings think of God, or at least they're supposed to. There is a special vibration in the air, and for centuries they have those days you know like we use, we think of Shivaratri in Bengal, the Durga Puja. Uh, f- five days and nights and there are special times like that in the year uh, good times for meditation so time second thing is take advantage of time um, I, some of the monks I knew regularity time I mentioned sometimes one monk who passed away in the ICU and the nurses there would see in the ICU difficult to know whether it's day or night because it's always neon lit and all Very sick patients are there. But he would always struggle in his bed and get up. He's dying. He died a few days later. But every day he would get up at just before 4 o'clock. And you sit like this on the pillow. The hands are moving. The japa is going on. It's a lifetime practice. Time. Exactly at that time he gets up. And although he may not be very much conscious of anything outside. So regular time. Make it a lifetime practice. As much as possible. If not possible, we know, lives are busy. It may not be always possible. Then do whatever you can. But if not, you see, mind becomes trained in such a way, Sri Ramakrishna said, like the needle of a compass. It normally points the polar axis, not south axis. If you spin it around like this, what will happen? It will go around and then, again swing back to that. So the mind of the yogi should become like that compass. Our meditative habits should be such, that when the world throws your mind into a spin, problems come, difficulties come, mind gets upset, annoyed, unhappy, anxious, but very soon it will whirl around and come back to that. The problem is our minds are just the opposite, always whirling around, and it takes effort to bring it back to that axis, that means pointing towards God, but that part should be effortless whatever the world does it, your mind will be thrown off balance for a while but it will come back again so that you have to train your mind like that and auspicious place number three Swami Ashokanji says have a place it also means if a, it could be a corner in your house it could be a room in your house a special meditation seat for yourself the moment and some people have Special clothes. Don't do too much of it, then it will not be possible. And the danger of training yourself too much in this way is when you don't have that seat and when you don't have those, that set of clothes and your mind feels, I'm a little impure, I can't meditate now. It's because of those clothes. No, so don't, this should not become a weakness. It should become a support for meditation. So a special place. Now there are auspicious places. That's why churches, somebody said, I like this room. It has a good vibration. Yes. There's a good vibration, it's like a a church basically and there have been some holy thinking, some meditation which has gone on here. So a temple, a church, a meditation hall where people have thought about God or contemplated quietly for a long time. So this meditation hall, this idea spread everywhere, but the way they execute it sometimes, I found an international airport. Fantastic! And they say, proudly they will announce, meditation room in such and such place. Meditation and interfaith room. So, good. I must go and see. I saw, just next to the bathroom. That's the only place they could find. (laughs) Because it's low down on the priority. Big food court is there, big uh, um, court for um, like a you know, all sorts of shiny objects are there, duty-free. But in one corner next to the washroom, there is a the meditation room. Because that's not high priority. Um, no, it should be a holy place, which, which has associations. Right time and right place, immediately when you sit down, it's a big support to your mind. And people do feel a vibration it's not enough to say just because you have conditioned your mind this is a holy place, this is a temple so you will feel holy there that might have something to do with it but I have seen in Belurmat, our main monastery thousands of people come many people are just like tourists they are just coming there I have seen how they enter the gate and they say "Ah, wow, what a peaceful place now it's not at all peaceful at that hour there are thousands of people coming in but just entering the gate they feel peaceful So it's not just association. They are not regular devotees. They have come maybe for the first time in their life. But there is something there. Association with place. Regularity, time, place. You know, one of the most powerful meditations I have is a very simple thing. Uh, It's, I, um, year after year, Every day in the morning and evening in Belurmat, we have these pranams. We offer our salutations to the temple of Sri Ramakrishna, to the temple in Swami Brahmananda, sharada's temple, Swami Vivekananda's temple, and the place where the monks are cremated, the direct disciples, the Samadhisthal. And it's a routine. Now, because I have done it quietly, attentively, day after day, month after month, year after year, for maybe... 12 to 14 years of my life. More than that, 15, 16, 16 years of my life. Now, it's effortless. You can just sit down quietly. I can recall the feel of the pavement below my feet. The stairs as I can climb them. The whole thing is vivid. Before, Just close my eyes, it's so vivid. The image of Sri Ramakrishna in the temple. It's very, the cool touch of the marble on my forehead when I bow down. Everything is the tactile, the visual, the feeling around and the mental feeling inside it's very clear, every path, every step of the path to the temple of the Holy Mother that temple itself, what thoughts come when you go there now it's just repetition time and place and regularity and it's, it's a powerful, effortless visualization now. but effortless now because 15-16 years it's been repeated every day so this is the power of repetition Regular, time, place. I remember a nice um, uh, analogy was given to me by a yogi in uh, uh, Gangotri. I was sitting by the river. So we used to go for begging for food, but that was not adequate. So I'd feel hungry. So there were these apples I would pluck from the trees and I would eat the apples and sit near the river, munching the apples. Now, once one yogi came and sat next to me. The river was in full spate at that time, Ganga. It's narrow and fast there. It was just after the monsoon season, so a lot of water. And he said, Swami, you know what's the difference between a worldly mind and a yogic mind? The mind of, one who, of the meditator and the one who does not meditate. What is the difference? The difference is this. Look at this river. It's full of water and flowing fast. And the water is dirty. And it's dangerous. We can't cross it easily. And if you, you'll get swept away. If you, well, actually somebody had died the day before. Had been swept away. Now he says, the water is, but if you come in winter, when you come in winter, the same river, it will be mostly frozen. The higher reaches are frozen. So there's less water. And it flows slowly. And it's crystal clear water. Now it's dirty because landslides and a lot of mud have fall, has fallen into the water. But at that time it's crystal clear and it's sweet and it's easy to cross over. Not dangerous at all. So Similarly he says the, the non-yogic mind the non-meditating mind the worldly mind is like this river right now full of thoughts. Impure thoughts moving and changing fast and dangerous it can no matter, we don't know where it will take you and what it will make you do and you can't drink this water nor can you give it to others he said similarly that worldly mind it gives you no peace and gives no peace to those around you but the yogic mind is that like this same river in winter there will be fewer thoughts and all controlled and deliberate just like the water at that time and the water is not at all dangerous you can actually walk across and the water is absolutely clear you can see through the water to the bottom of the river the river bed similarly the yogic mind is so clear and peaceful you can see through to what, is, what lies underneath it that means that's the yoga sutra actually it says the atman is beyond the mind so that becomes clear and it gives you, you can drink this water, you can give it to others at in winter. Similarly, you, this yogic mind gives you peace and it gives peace to all others around you also. So very nice comparison he drew between meditating mind and non-meditating mind. Then, next. Um, thoughts. As you start meditating, you will become aware of thoughts, especially patterns of thinking, habitual patterns of thinking, and what we may call bad thoughts, impure thoughts, disturbing thoughts, negative thoughts. How do you handle them? And somebody said, actually, I was quite peaceful earlier. After starting meditation, I've become so disturbed. (laughs) No. Those thoughts were always there. You're not aware of them. You never paid any attention. When you quieten down, sit quietly, they become vivid to you. Another example is, you know those ink pots were there earlier when you had fountain pens, pens with ink? If you ever tried to wash an ink, ink pot, what will happen is, at first, more and more dark and dirty water will come out. Because all the crystallized ink will come out first. Then it will become clearer and clearer until it becomes become crystal clear. Similarly, at first, negative thoughts come out. The thing is to quietly watch them. Not to get carried away, not to get disturbed. Those thoughts are things. They are like so much dirt, accumulated patterns of thought. They are not you. They may scare you, but they are not you. Depressing thoughts, negative thoughts, violent thoughts, resentful thoughts. Don't give in to them. Watch them, they will go away. Getting caught up in thought patterns is very dangerous. That's why sometimes when people are mentally disturbed or unsteady, we, we tell them not to meditate. Meditation can be dangerous for such minds. They're not strong enough and what will come up from inside is so powerful, like a demon, it catches them and takes them away. For such minds, it's much better to get engaged in the world. And do some service, get involved in some activity, creative activity, service activity. Much better. So... Patterns of thoughts, negative thoughts, do not be swayed by them. Watch them. They will go away. Remember, they will come and they will go away. It'll take some time. That um, the story is there of the Zen master. Uh, the student came to the Zen Master and he said, I, if I meditate, all bad thoughts come to my mind. I'm feeling very disturbed. So the teacher said, Don't worry. Take a bowl of take a bowl, and there's there are two piles of stones. One pile of, you know in the Japanese gardens you have smooth stones, pebbles. So white stones and one pile of smooth black stones. Whenever a thought which disturbs you comes, take a black stone and put it in the bowl. Whenever a thought which is pure and good, uplifting comes to your mind, take a white thought and put it in the bowl. And so sit and watch your mind. And the, the student did this exercise. At the beginning the bowl was full of mostly black stones and a few white Within a few weeks, it was more white stones and a lesser black. Within, by the end of the year, maybe one or two, still one or two black stones, but mostly white stones. Over time, as the mind calms down, it becomes more sattvic, pure. Now, bad company. Hmm. Swami Ashokaran just says, a very powerful impact on your mind is bad company. company of whom you, whose company you keep. Bad company, it's not pejorative in the sense of That person is bad. Not in that sense. A person may be very worldly. And if you keep company with such a person, knowingly or unknowingly, one might think, I'm very clever, I will not be affected. But if you live in a house of soot, then some black mark will come on on your clothes. So be careful whose company you keep. If you actually start, one one advantage is, if you actually start practicing spiritual disciplines, such people will move away from you. And say, oh, that person has become so boring. One Swami said, how, if you are being bothered by thugs, by, by crooks, how do you, you can't fight with them. They are violent people. What do you do? Start keeping company with the police. If, you start, if the thugs, the crooks see that you are hanging around with the police, they will keep away from them. So keep holy thoughts in your mind, the other thoughts will keep away. Our mind is basically, it's beyond our control now. The Swami Nishriya Shanji used to give a nice example. He said, our condition, our, our mind is, we do not know our own minds. We think it's my mind, so I can do whatever, whatever I want. I can think, uh, right now I'm entertaining some not so good worldly thoughts, but when I want, I can think about God very easily. Not so easy. We are very unaware of the strengths of our own mind. We are aware of our physical strength. Can you run the New York Marathon? No, I'm not in shape. Can you lift... lift 200 pounds weightlifting? no I cannot do that we are aware of our physical limitation can you sit in meditation for 30 minutes yeah what's wrong it's so easy it isn't we, our mental mind also has capacity and it also takes training so Nishriya Shans used to give this example suppose you have an apartment in some other city and your friend comes and says can I stay in your apartment a few days I am going to that city for, a, for some work and you say yeah I have uh, some, a caretaker is there I am going to give you this note he is my friend, please let him stay in my apartment for a few days. You go to present that note, they will let you stay. Now your friend goes and rings the bell, a few rough looking characters come out and say, what? I'm going to stay here. Says who? You no, know, this is the owner of the apartment. He has given a note, see? And that guy takes the note and tears it up and then catches your friend and throws him out on the street. Now will you still say the apartment is yours? It may be legally yours, but practically it has been taken over by Squatters or somebody else has come and taken over. Similarly, our mind has become so used to worldly thoughts, thoughts, desirous thoughts, envious thoughts, angry thoughts, resentful thoughts, thoughts of suspicion, all to do with the world. That when now you say, I have taken mantra from the Guru, the mantra has to remain in my mind. You tell the mantra, it's my mind, don't worry, go in there. Here's the note. Guru says, mantra has to remain here. I say, my mind, mantra will remain here go in there and then these rough thoughts come out and yes, what do you want? the poor mantra says, I have to stay here Ram, 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 Krishna, Krishna, Krishna and those fellows, they catch hold of uh, envy, anger resentment, hatred desire, suspicion they catch hold of the poor mantra and throw it out go that's what happens because of bad patterns of thinking that can be replaced and bad company bad company encourages brings out these tendencies which are already there in our mind it just brings out exactly the opposite happens holy company it brings out the good we all have good samskaras we all have sattvic samskaras holy company it is very powerful that's the last point he will say So I am not talking about it now but um, one of the most powerful things I have seen spiritual practice holy company but Swami Ashokanji himself was humorous about it when he would talk often about that so one lady wrote to him Swami, I am convinced about the power of holy company so I, have, I want holy company and The And Swami wrote back to her the letters are still there Madam, I am glad to know that you want holy company but the question is, do the holy want your company? <laughs> he was joking of course Then the next one is so be careful of the company you keep. Good company is good. If don't get good company, then no company is good. And solitude is better. Solitude is very good. One sadhu put it very nicely. Solitude, the agyani, the ignorant man, the man of the world is terrified of solitude. Alas, I am alone, nobody likes me, I am lonely, I am unhappy just think about it what does when you are alone and you are unhappy what does it mean it means I am not happy in my company then why would anybody else be happy in my company <laughs> I don't like my own company then why would anybody else nobody likes me do you like yourself no <laughs> I asked a sadhu and then that sadhu said but the opposite is the jnani who for whom sol- solitude is the highest state. In fact, the definition of moksha in the, in the yoga sutras, kaivalya, aloneness. That is moksha, that's liberation. Nothing to be scared of. Aloneness with a capital A. I think, who said it? Mm, probably, um, Plotinus, I think. What is Spirituality. It's a journey of the alone to the alone. Alone with small a, capital A, alone. Journey of the alone to the alone. Solitude, not loneliness. Agyani is lonely. Spiritual person enjoys solitude. I asked a sadhu who lived in the high Himalayas, very happy. He was a Punjabi sadhu. Tall, powerfully built, long hair, white dress up to his ankles. And there were these little kids who would come and play in the ashram and he would have this uproarious laughter. Very nice. Now one day I asked him, now it's summer time and all these people are visiting and it's beautiful. And There were snows in the higher, in the higher peaks but that place there, there was no snow. It was a very nice place to stay. But what happens in winter when everybody goes away and you are alone for six months, nobody is there. And there is snow. Remember, there's snow if it's minus 15 outside is also minus your bed is also minus 15 there's no internal heating or external there's no difference between inside and outside unless you have a stove going or something so it's tough and it's absolutely you're helpless set to yourself there's nobody around and that's when the wolves and the bears start prowling because the higher mountains there's no prey for them so they come down lower looking for things to eat so um, so how do you stay at that time when you are absolutely alone and his answer was very beautiful I still remember he chuckled and he said uh, Swami when now I am happy at that time I am happier uh, happiest he said in Hindi Mahatma ji ab maje mein hu tab aur bhi majay mein hu tab aur bhi mein hu mein means in, uh, real happiness I am happy now and at that time I am even happier That's a sign of a truly mature mind. Are you comfortable with with your solitude? Then the next one, Swami Ashokanji says, is sixth point, is um, asceticism. Asceticism, asceticism. that is, uh, some austere living. In Sanskrit, it's called tapasya. Tapasya means In matters of sleep, comfort, enjoyment, food, company, entertainment. uh, Don't be severe on yourself. That's not sustainable. The good rule which I have found is whatever you are comfortable with in all these matters, make it a little less. Tighten it a little bit. So there will be some resistance from the body. There will be some resistance from the mind and that's good. Don't immediately. If you're used to getting up at uh, when I say seven o'clock, <laughs> then don't immediately say I'll get up at three forty because the Swami said so. But that'll last only for two days, and then next day it'll, it'll be nine o'clock. <laughs> no, but a little better, little more, a little earlier than you're used to. In at, um, items of food, wherever the mind relaxes and tries to uh, let go, loosen. There, tighten it up a little bit. Little bit of fasting is good, not too much. A little bit of fasting you Don't fast to the extent that See the purpose of all this asceticism Is to make the mind concentrated Powerful so that you can think of God Your mind and body comes under control But if you deprive it too much And too fast Then the mind will keep thinking about What you have deprived it of One monk in Gangotri, still remember he's, He told me uh, he Remember when he, they talk about asceticism And tapasya that's pretty austere They are already leading a pretty austere life By our standard One monk said every day when when, uh, he used to live in a cave now he has an ashram but he used to live in a cave when he was young he was also Punjabi he said uh, I would go every day to. there was a place where they would give monks milk so I would go for a glass of milk but you have to go over hill and dale to get it maybe 45 minutes of walk on the mountains he said I am wasting 45 minutes for a glass of milk why not give it up and just use that 45 minutes or one hour. No, 45 minutes going, 45 minutes coming back. Use that one and a half hours for meditation. And decided, I will do that. And he did it. And then he was humorous. He says, Dhyan karenge. Dude, peanuts, we'll give up that. I don't need that glass of milk. I'll meditate. Then he said, so monks, we are all sitting around. I did exactly that. I did that. I meditated on milk. He so said, the next day I sat down to milk uh, to meditate, I am meditating, what am I thinking? Good, I have given up, see how great. I have got one and a half hours to meditate. Then, perhaps it's not necessary to give up for all seven days of the week, maybe one day I can go and one, six days I can meditate. <laughs> then he said, it's much better to go and uh, have the glass of milk and come back and, and meditate, and, and then think about that. that. So, uh, for asceticism, also that. uh, Remember, uh, common sense. So, Shivaratri. I remember fasting. I never fasted earlier. The first time I fasted was was when I became a monk on Shivaratri. And uh, uh, so you get some fruits in the afternoon. But otherwise, no more, no food, in, no breakfast, no lunch, no dinner, whole night puja. Next day in the morning, you get food again. But in the afternoon, you get some fruits. So, I never ate so many fruits. <laughs> Not because I was hungry. In anticipation of being hungry. Maybe I'll be hungry. You won't be. Not really. So, th- that's what happens. Th- that's uh, the mind. I still remember this poor young man. He was a uh, teacher of mathematics, and uh, he went to a swami very proudly, and he said, "Tomorrow Shivaratri, I will also fast. Can I also fast?" And the swami, <laughs> instead of, yeah, I still remember, he said, "What kind of question is that? Ten-year-old little children are going to fast. How are you? Aren't you ashamed of asking such a question? Am I going to fast or not? Of course, you are going to fast." <laughs> and you should see in the poor man's face; it, it became so. <laughs> he looked so miserable. <laughs> In Bengali, he said, Chi, 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 didn't uh, No shame in saying such a thing. <laughs> little boys are going to fast, and you are asking whether I will fast or not. So, um, asceticism. In Vedanta, it's called titiksha. One way of practicing ascetic- asceticism is putting up with the troubles in life. <coughs> in spite of little illness, I will still meditate. I remember I was very ill once. I was on IV, intravenous, in the hospital. I thought, okay, I was a new, I was a novice. I thought, okay, I'm I'm really ill, you know, sick, and some people thought I might die. So I guess it's excused. I I I can sort of lie down in my bed and do a little bit of mantra japa. I don't have to sit up and meditate. So, and to my everlasting big lesson, another Swami who was in his 70s or 80s, he had come for an operation. An operation was done. He was s- sedated, in anesthésia. He was wheeled in. He was transferred to the bed. He slept that night. Next in the morning, before dawn, I saw that Swami was as usual up, facing the wall, sitting like this, like a rock, and meditating for two, three hours at a stretch. This eighty-year-old man, nearly eighty-year-old man, who had just had an operation the day before, is up and meditating. Uh, so. Um, whatever the troubles in life, I will pursue my spiritual practice. That is a good That is a good asceticism. Sickness in life. Anxiety is there in life. Sorrow is there in life. Such tremendous stories are there. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Sri Chaitanya. He used to go. Every night there would be um, some devotee's house. The Vaishnavas would gather, led by Sri Chaitanya. And they would be singing of the name of Rama and Krishna and and uh, uproarious chanting of the name of Krishna and Rama and dancing. Jaitanya would go into Samadhi and dance and they would surround him. And it would be its called Utsava, festival of the holy name. And this very senior devotee of his, he organized that. That day, his son died. And he got the information. And he suppressed it from everybody, including his wife. Because Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is coming to his house. And... Uh, so, the festival should go on. And the festival went on. This old man with tears in his eyes, he still sang the name of Rama and Krishna and danced with the devotees and happily fed them and everything went on perfectly. He knew the pain in his heart. And chaitanya Mahaprabhu knew. So, when he embraced that man, the both of them went into Samadhi because he knew. So, that putting up, that's an extreme case, putting up with The sorrows of the world because of my love for God. That's a test that God puts us through. That kind of, you see, what kind of concentration that will bring. So, but again, common sense. This example I've given earlier, um, two novices I knew, um, two extremes, One is, I have to put up with all sorts of pains and struggles, so he has got a knee pain. And he's sitting in the class, I'm teaching, he goes like, what happened? Pain in the knee. And get it treated. No. I'm putting up with it. Then he's meditating. Everybody sitting in the meditation hall, he's sitting like this and (laughs) meditating. He can't bend his knee. Now what is the use? You're meditating on your knee. You're supposed to meditate on God. Don't do that. Uh, remember the first arrow and second arrow. Spirituality is meant for removing the second arrow. The first arrow, you take help. Medicine, whatever is the problem, the equivalent help, as much as you can get. It will work to some extent, will not work. There are problems which cannot really be cured. You have to put up with them. So first arrow is always like that. The second arrow is a really important thing. So that's one, one extreme. The other extreme is, Another uh, young monk, he got stomach pain, a novice, and he became—he used to get worried. You know, now it's going to hurt. He stopped eating properly. He became skinnier, and we took him to doctors. Treatment was going on. There was no effect, no response to the medicines. Then finally, I told him, "Don't worry about it. That worrying was killing him. If the pain comes, it'll come. We are going to good doctors. Treatment has started. Uh, things are being done." Now resign yourself to God and concentrate on what you have come here for. To your study and meditation and, and all of that. And he was a very good monk. He ex- did exactly that. And I am so happy that years later he wrote a postcard in from another ashram. And Maharaj, you know that stomach pain I had? It's finally gone. There have been months and months. It has not come back again. But the good advice was, now that things are being done, taken care of, you concentrate on God. Don't concentrate on stomach pain. No knee pain meditation, no stomach pain meditation. Meditation on God only. So balance in both. Um, number seven. Yes. What I told you earlier, with that when you enter the hall, you come to the presence of God, sit down for meditation. I am God. Not I as father am worried about son and daughter. Not I as mother, not I as husband, wife, I as corporate executive, will I be laid off? What will my boss think of me? What about the deadline? No, I am not coming to God as a corporate executive, as father, mother, son, not as person who's, what is happening to the stock price on Wall Street? No, everything, like the shoes you cast off before entering temple, you cast off all identities. Somebody pointed out, busy, tension, so much responsibility. Huge, New York, just outside New York in Queens, you have huge graveyard, cemetery. Those were among the busiest people in the world. Hmm. Now look at them. Think you are like that. Nothing in the world depends on you. Nothing in the world depends on you. Nothing in the world depends on us. Don't worry. When you are trying to catch hold of God, that's when the mind plays tricks. We have got so many other responsibilities. Yes, only mind thinks about responsibilities only when you ask it to think about God. Other times, no. So, feel completely detached from all the roles of your life. I approach God with the... Ashokanji says beautifully, approach God with a sense of eternity. Look back upon your life. These, this day in your life, no matter what the tension, what the fear, 20 years later, 40 years later, when you look back upon this day in your life, it will be a small thing. Some memory, mostly will forgotten. Then why give importance to it now? Mahatma Gandhi, you see, in, in the most intense moments of political struggle, great tension with all the other leaders, Nehru or others our intention, what is going to happen for the freedom struggle he is is regular about his meditation, about his prayer Um, I read something very nice Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Martin Luther, the the founder of the protestant movement very nice thing is written that every day I I spend an hour on my knees praying to God and when I have no time at all, too much work I spend two hours on my knees praying to God (laughs) so come to God with a feeling of eternity detached from everything only I and thou my Lord and nothing else and that is the truth all the others like a cloud every day in the night when you go to sleep where are responsibilities where is father, mother, husband, wife, children where? where is stock price? (laughs) nothing it all disappears any guarantee that we will wake up tomorrow? No guarantee. No guarantee. Okay. Then number eight, he says, yearning for God, very important. Do I want it? This is unfortunately, <laughs> we will scratch our heads and say, yes, I want it, but not enough. Stimulate. Um, this uh, Swami Ashokanji says, stimulate it. Suppose I wanted it. Imagine the intense desire of Sri Ramakrishna for seeing the uh, Divine Mother Kali. The intense seeking of Vivekananda. I must see God. Uh, All the lives of the great saints. One thing they had in common. Men and women, ancient, medieval, modern. One thing they had in common. This intense desire for God. This hunger for God. So to some extent, s- simulate it. It will come. If you have that, everything else is okay. Uh, you, everything will fall in place because if you have the desire everything as we do whatever we want we actually arrange everything accordingly and try to get that it's only when we do not want then lot of techniques methods <laughs> books all are necessary uh, Sri Ramakrishna says to the man who is very thirsty even water in a puddle on the ground he will remove the scum on the top and try to drink that water on the puddle in the ground very thirsty And person who is not thirsty, never even think of that water, my God. Not thirsty, then you require what? Polar, poland spring water. What is there? Yes. Nestle, pure life. From the Swiss Alps, yes. Otherwise it will not do. Or something else is there. Smart water. Water is not smart really. Smart water, intelligent water, or smart water so not thirsty in Vedanta they speak about so many qualifications viveka, vairagya, discernment dispassion for worldliness if you read all that you will feel no it's not for me but it's for everybody actually Ramana Marshi that's nice story is there somebody went and said am I qualified for Vedanta am I qualified for so many qualifications necessary Am I qualified for Vedanta? And Ramana Maharshi? you know, he's who am I? So He said, did you say I? <laughs> then you're qualified. If you say I, <laughs> and that's something that every one of us says, then you're qualified. You're qualified to ask who am I? If you say I, you're qualified to ask who am I? So yearning for God. We are all qualified to realize God. We, the more we move towards it, the more yearning will increase. And then number nine, have a bhava throughout the day. This is important. Don't jump into meditation. Don't <laughs> this is not translatable into English. With some of the Swamis in the in the monastery, they sit down, they'll put their cloth around them, sit for meditation, and they have a rosary, prayer bead. Immediately you can hear the rattling sound, rattling very fast. You know, doing the, it's like a machine has been switched on. Not like that. When you come, sit quietly for some time quieten down then gently enter into meditation after you have finished then sit quietly for some time before you come back into the world take time give time to it throughout the day have you know, like the sitar music in the background like Tanpura music in the background Tanpura music like that have a connection of the divine throughout the day maybe the mantra is going on maybe a prayer is going on in the mind that advice we read Sri Krishna gave to Latu Maharaj, "Jage, Joge, Jage, thagbi When you are awake throughout your days, in the days to come, when Sri Krishna, when I said I'm not, when I'm not there, throughout the, your days, be awake in yoga and yaga. Yoga means some connection to God. You're visualizing, meditating, repeating the name of God, and yaga means service. yagya, the sacrifice. So, throughout the day, morning till night, some connection is there. So, when you sit down for meditation, I would see one way the monks would establish this connection is um, they would visit the temple several times throughout the day. They would make it a part of their routine, even in the midst of their busy schedule. Of course, morning they will come for meditation. And then after breakfast, they'll come for a. They'll bow down to the, in, in the shrine and go back to their rooms. When they're going for their work in the office, school or somewhere on their way they'll come to their shrine and bow down. In the middle of their work sometimes they'll come once and bow down. Just before lunch the bell is there. So some breaks in the whole day you take that opportunity connected to God. You, cannot, you may not have a shrine to go and bow down to but you can have a little picture which you can open and look at or touch to your head. So connect yourself to God throughout the day somehow or the other. I remember this old Swami. (laughs) These images keep coming. I was a young novice, as usual, a bookworm. So I'd come to the library in the main monastery. I was in another institution nearby. So I'd come to the library in the main monastery. I was reading. And the library closed for evening prayers. Instead of going to the evening prayers, I was going back to my room to read the book. And this old Swami was coming. He was like perfectly round. He was short and... He was maybe in his 70s or 80s. I still remember. (laughs) Very funny, very loving old Swami. He saw that the bell has rung and this young novice is walking the other way. So as I passed him, he caught my hand. Nothing, I didn't even say anything. He sort of, as he walked along, he he was very strong. So he literally dragged me after him. (laughs) Lovingly. So that I will go and sit down (laughs) and meditate. Some were not so uh, sweet. I remember once another time, these are the the memories that you have. They may be scoldings, but you remember them with great love throughout your life. When I was very new, um, after the evening prayer, we were supposed to meditate. I came down from the temple into the library, which was below the temple, opened the library, opened the book. In those days, no computers anything. You had to open the encyclopedias and read. So I was pulling it out, preparing for my next day's classes, which I would teach the students trick of the mind you don't have to prepare in the meditation time for the classes but a senior swami I still remember him a very tough swami he comes and what are you doing I said, swami I am preparing for the class tomorrow even as I said it it sounded <laughs> false to me <laughs> yeah, avoiding meditation put it back and he stood and glared at me until I put the book back and locked the cabinet the uh, book, book cabinet and go up and meditate and he stood glaring at me like this until I sort of <laughs> climbed the stairs looking back at him. He was at the bottom of the stairs until uh, you would sit in the... You know. He had a very direct approach to training the youngsters. So early morning, if you're meditating or sleeping, suddenly at this tremendous burst, it's dark in the, in the shrine, a tremendous burst of light. I thought, what, already enlightenment? <laughs> I was... Just maybe one week into becoming a monk, said, that's pretty fast. No, it was early in the morning and the Swami was holding a powerful flashlight and checking which which novice was meditating and who was sleeping, you know? <laughs> I remember <laughs> these interesting discussions. Um, Novices always this is a struggle to get up early in the morning and meditate. So this Swami, who was the second Swami, a very tough Swami, he went to the head Swami, who was much wiser and much more, uh, very very spiritual man. He was, this second Swami was very worried. Why are these youngsters not getting up in the morning and meditate? Why are they so sleepy? So he went to the senior Swami and he said, uh, if we give them uh, sweets, you know, cookies in the morning, will they come? If you say that if you come to the temple, we'll give you a cookie. <laughs> In Bengali, he said, Will they come? The senior saw me with an exasperated voice He said, "Fools! <laughs> let them, let the fools sleep." He said his um, terrifying words, "Highway to hell!" He said, "Highway to hell! Let the fools sleep." <laughs> that woke us up. <laughs> then last one um, holy company swami ashokananda says this whether you believe it or not i think this is the most important thing holy company company of remember he was he He had the company of Swami Brahmananda, Swami the many of the direct disciples of Ramakrishna, he knew many people who were actually enlightened, Jivan Muktas He said once you meet such a person, the reality of spiritual life cannot be denied Once you see such a person even briefly also, you will never forget it your whole life There is something extraordinary, that little boy who saw the Buddha and asked, what are you? You can never forget such a person it has a life-changing experience on you. And the more you see such a person, the more your life changes. A deep impression. And you will realize, at the end of your life, that was the most valuable part of my life, meeting those people. The holy power of holy company. Ashokanji writes, if such a person tells you, God is real, you are not the body, not the mind, you have an immortal soul, it has a deep effect. It convinces you. At some very profound level, you feel convinced. So the power of holy company that comes to a lot of good karma. To a lot of good karma, the blessings of meeting such people in our lives. It changes our life. Shankaracharya, he sings that satsanga, the, the company of the holy, is the boat which takes us across the river of, uh, of samsara, ocean of samsara. All right. So, these are the 10 points. Oh, I took such a lot of time. I thought I would take one hour, but you have got 10. How much time do we have? Yeah. So, questions, reactions? Tomorrow we will do the yoga sutras. Comments? Alright. If not, I will uh, tell a story. I will end this thing with a story. Two stories, actually. So, the yoga sutras of Patanjali... Um, There the whole text is attributed The whole of yoga tradition Meditation Becoming enlightened through meditation Is attributed To Hiranyagarbha Literally it means The golden egg or the golden womb Now different sources Give different meanings Uh, It is mentioned in the Bhagavata Purana It is mentioned in Manusmriti also and yajnavalkya Samhita, I think. Yes. That this whole teaching of yoga comes from a great sage called Hiranyagarbha. In the Bhagavata Purana and in Vedanta, Hiranyagarbha is identified with Brahma, the creator of the world. So the story is like this. Um, you know the iconography. Vishnu, who is always a bit of a couch potato, is lying on the cosmic serpent, Shesha Naga, The cosmic, it's depicted as a thousand hooded enormous serpent and on the coils of that serpent Vishnu is lying on it is eternal sleep but he's not sleeping, he's dreaming and his dream is the universe so the first thing that happens when the universe is created which is created many times again and again the whole universe goes through cycles of creation, existence and it disappears again Srishti, Sthriti, Laya Srishti is not really creation, projection it's already there, like a movie show. Yeah, that's a good example. In a movie theatre, the same movie is shown several times. So it's projected, and it goes on for some time, then it's switched off. But it's still there, the film is still there, and it's projected again. And then it plays, and it's switched off. Now, like that, when at first the universe is projected, the first emanation, first creation, first of the gods to come, uh, is Brahma. So the, you know, the iconography, a lotus blooms in the navel of Vishnu and on the lotus is sitting Brahma. That's how it is shown. Um, mundakopanishad. Brahma devanam pratamasambabhuva Vishwasya karta bhuvanasya gopta. Mundakopanishad begins with this. Of all the devatas, the, the, the gods, Brahma was the first to emerge. Uh, the creator, the constructor of the universe. You say that, "But doesn't God create the universe? Yes, Vishnu does create the universe, but he sort of outsources it to Brahma. because he, he is a little lazy. He says, tells Brahma, "Now you do it. I want a universe like this." So Brahma emerges from Vishnu, and he's supposed to create the universe. But at first, the story is that Brahma is called Hiranyagarbha. At first, the story is that Brahma doesn't know, where am I? Who am I? What is this? What's happening? Nothing is there. The universe is not there. He's not even aware of the existence of God, Vishnu. So what does he do? The story in Bhagavat Purana, the story is, Brahma then closes his eyes. Nagarbha closes his eyes and sits in meditation. Of course, he has eyes and all stuff. So he sits in meditation. And with his inward, concentrated mind, he immediately realizes he has the vision of Vishnu, the, his source from which he has come and everything is revealed to him so that's the beginning of yoga, that's the story that's the beginning of yoga so he is the one who discovers yoga meditation because by meditation he realized everything, he was enlightened so he passes it down that's why some of the old texts this meditation, path of meditation is called, people are called followers of Hiranyagarbha, I read Madhusudan Saraswati Writing about yogis But the word he uses is not Patanjali yogi or yogi He says the follow, for the followers of Hiranyagarbha What does he mean? Who is this? this, is, this is that, he is referring that story So this is one story Now there is a story about the snake too This is about Brahma on the lotus But Vishnu is lying on the cosmic snake Who is that snake? Patanjali Patanjali yoga sutra so Patanjali is an incarnation of Adi Shesha, the cosmic serpent. He is incarnated to do what? To do three things. To give humanity the benefit of three things. One for the mind, yoga, the Yoga Sutras. One for uh, speech, grammar, Sanskrit grammar. And one for the body, Ayurveda. See, so he is one of the sources of the science of ancient science of medicine, Ayurveda. Patanjali Rishi and that's why they have named all these Ayurveda products in India now the Patanjali industries and all. but Patanjali Rishi is he is the incarnation of Shesha Naga uh, the cosmic serpent and the three boons he has given to humanity are for mind speech and body Kaimana Vakya so for mind this yoga which we will see tomorrow and Ayurveda which is very popular uh, and for speech ha- Sanskrit grammar the sutras of Sanskrit grammar the foundational text of Sanskrit grammar is Panini Sutra not the bread (laughs) I had that uh, experience when I first landed in USA and the Swami had come to receive me at LAX we are going in the car to the ashram I saw Panini written there I was surprised looking at it like that I thought Sanskrit grammar here too and (laughs) And the Swami understood what was going on in my mind. It's not that Panini. It's it's bread. It's a particular kind of bread. I said, Oh, okay. (laughs) Panini was the most the most ancient grammarian. Recently, in in Harvard, yes, somebody told me. uh, Hold on. Somebody told me that uh, uh, it uh, it seems that you know Noam Chomsky, great linguist. He says the last great linguist that the human humanity saw, human civilization saw was Spanini in India. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And after that Tom Chomsky. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't think Chomsky is as great as Panini. And even Chomsky himself would not say that. Yes. And then you talk about you mm-hmm. so of right. the Right. Same thing, same thing. Cosmic mind. Hirinagarbha is cosmic mind. Then Vishnu corresponds to the deep sleep state. Uh, Saguna Brahman, Ishwara. Ishwara is deep sleep. Cosmic deep sleep is Ishwara. That is the state of Vishnu. Cosmic mind is the state of, of Brahma, Hiranyagarbha. And cosmic waking is the state of Virat. Exactly that one, Hiranyagarbha. Mind comes. Because yoga has to do with the mind. But beyond all three is the Turiya. Even beyond Vishnu is the Turiya. So what is that? That's you that's yeah, you the real you the Mandukya Upanishad waking dreaming deep sleep and that the fourth one beyond all three so waking dreaming deep sleep are all at individual level cosmic level individual level individual waker which we are right now the technical name for that is Vishwa when we sleep I the dreamer when I dream I am called Taijasa the fiery one And when I am in deep sleep, I am called Pragya. So these are the three names for me, the individual being. But there is this cosmic waking also. This entire universe together has one designation, Virat. Consciousness associated with the entire physical universe. Consciousness associated with one body is uh, Vishwa. Consciousness associated with the entire universe is called Virat which is what Arjuna saw in the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Vishwa Darshan. Consciousness associated with the dreaming mind, entire cosmic mind, all our minds together, uh, internet. <laughs> consciousness associated with that is called Hiranyagarbha. And consciousness associated with the entire um, the deep sleep, the resolved state of the universe, the Vishnu state of the universe is called uh, Ishwara, which is Vishnu actually, on, on the cosmic serpent, in deep sleep yes mind, dreaming yeah. and there is one more right now, this is a Virat that's, that's the Mandukya cat so you, uh, she was asking that, you, that one you said, Hiranyagarbha and in Mandukya in the dream state, cosmic dream state is supposed to be associated with Hiranyagarbha the term used is Hiranyagarbha, are they the same? they are the same, they are exactly the same why is it associated with yoga? It makes sense. Because yoga is all in the mind. It's to do with the mind. Okay. Now, the, f- the story I wanted to tell. Wh- when is snacks? Oh, tea and coffee. Yeah, so we have little time. No, I'm worried you're missing snacks. So the story is this. Patanjali is the incarnation of Sheshanaga, the the thousand-headed serpent of Vishnu. And he gave these three boons to humanity. So Panini is the source of Sanskrit grammar. So how, basically medicine for three things. Medicine for the mind. Jung and Freud, psychotherapy, yoga. So yoga is medicine for the mind. That was given by Patanjali the yoga sutras which we will study. And Sanskrit grammar is medicine for the speech to enable people to speak correctly in Sanskrit. And then Ayurveda is medicine for the body. Now, what is Patanjali's role in Sanskrit grammar? So Panini wrote the uh, original sutras of Sanskrit grammar. Yoga sutras are only 195, Patanjali yoga sutras, only 195. Uh, and I think bhakti sutras are 84 or 85 I think brahma sutras are 555 but the grammar sutras are nearly 4000 the sutras where the entire grammar is packed into it Now it needs explanation it needs explanation, commentary on that to explain those sutras so the masters of Sanskrit grammar they studied the original panini sutras with patanjali's commentary Patanjali wrote that commentary. It's called Mahabhashya, the great commentary. So the story goes, Patanjali was, treat, was about to teach, give it to humanity. And he had a thousand students. So they would gather in a huge hall. Thousand students of Sanskrit grammar. They would gather and Patanjali would teach Sanskrit grammar. But he had a rule. And so... That he would teach on a big stage, raised platform. And there would be a big curtain which would cover it. So when the class starts, the curtain will be closed. And from behind the closed curtains, he will teach. And when the class is over, then the curtain will be pulled. And then he comes out. Now the students were delighted with the class. They were amazed. A thousand students. And they each felt that the teacher was speaking to their own questions. They were speaking to them personally. And they were delighted with it. But students are always students, mischievous. So one of them thought, many of them thought, what's going on? Why is the old man hiding behind the curtain when he's he's speaking? What's going on behind the curtain? And he had strictly said, during the class, nobody should lift the curtain. Nobody should peek. One student couldn't contain himself any longer. So when the class was going on, he sort of crept up to the stage and he lifted the edge of the curtain and he looked inside. And inside he saw that the stage is not there anymore. It is the entire universe. Stars and, and, you know, planets and all constellations. And the whole thing is covered by this, this terrifying, this huge serpent with enormous fangs and, you know, the thousand heads flame emitting from the flame of destruction, cosmic destruction emitting from the tongues of the thousand heads of this serpent. The the Shesha Naga, the cosmic serpent. And he got terrified, and he fainted, and the curtain fell back, that little corner. But he had lifted the little corner, so a spark of that cosmic fire escaped from that. And immediately, the thousand students were reduced to ashes. They burnt up immediately. And poor Patanjali, he he regained his human form, and he lifted the curtain and jumped out of the stage, and and he cried out, alas, 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 not for the students. What will happen to Sanskrit grammar? Alas. (laughs) At this moment, one boy came to the room and said, Sir, may I come in? I, I think he had gone out for a washroom break or something like that. That's my theory. So that's why he was not burnt to a crisp. And Patanjali was delighted. Ah, grammar is saved. Come. And he embraced him and he t- gave him all his old Sanskrit grammar. Now, the story doesn't end here. There's a, somewhere it's going. So, when this boy was uh, ready to graduate, he had learned the entire Mahabhasha, he had got all the notes. Nowadays, it's all computers and mobile, I saw. But in those days, you have to write down and on palm leaves. Hard work. So he was ready to graduate. He said, I will go back to my village and start the first Sanskrit school. And Patanjali was very happy. Now I have given grammar to humanity. They can speak well. So <laughs> now this boy goes on his way back to his village. And then it's a hot summer Indian day. So he wants to rest under a tree. So he goes to rest under this tree in the shade of the tree and he keeps the bundle of notes on leaves. Now this goat was grazing nearby <laughs> and he sees those nice leaves so he starts munching on them. Luckily this boy wakes up with a start and he shooes away the goat oh my god sho- shooes away the goat and he can't get it back again remember no backup no cloud he can download it from because um, Patanjali has gone back to the cloud. He's, he's uh, gone back to his real state as Shesha So he rescues the notes. But a part of it is irrevocably lost. And so that is called the goat-eaten commentary. The Aja Bharsya. So actually the whole fanciful story I think has been invented because a part of the commentary is not available anymore. So that's why. I wonder if the goat became a grammarian afterwards. <laughs> that's the story. Of Patanjali. There's a story of Hiranyagarbha and Patanjali. What they taught became the first manual of meditation. And see how popular it is today. Even today, all over the world. The vast amount of Buddhist meditation we see. Those are special developments in Tibet, later on in Japan, in China. But the sources from India, this is what he learned. Buddha himself learned from the Sankhian teachers. And he modified it, he developed it further. But the source is there. In fact, I found an interesting article. I was visiting London, so I wanted to see a library, obviously. So, <laughs> the British Library in London. And I became a member of the British Library. So, an interesting system they have. Absolutely free. They don't charge a single thing. Within 15 minutes, I was a member of the British Library. I said, I have only two hours here. I said, okay, you can just go and see. Without being a member, you can't see the collection. So, I went and started searching yoga. And I found an interesting article one of the greatest modern yogis, Hariharananda Aranyaka, he lived about um, maybe 50 or 60 years ago, he passed away, more than under 70 or 80 years ago. But the most uh, comprehensive commentary on yoga available now, modern commentary, is by Hariharananda Aranyaka, the most recent uh, commentary. He was a great yogi. So it's about his tradition. And how they relate to Buddha. And the article says that we were surprised to see that this... Remember, Buddhism and Hinduism have a millennia-long debate. They're like, Buddhists say there is no God, there is no permanent soul, and Hindus try to prove the existence of God and a permanent soul, and so thousands regard them as rivals. But here is a Sankhian teacher, a, yogi, a Patanjali yoga teacher, who regards Buddha as one of the greatest Sankhiyans. How interesting. So he, he explores and he shows actually the teachings of Sankhya and the teachings of Buddhism are not very different. Early Buddhism and early Sankhya. There are many similarities there. We'll talk about more about Haryananda Aranya. They're very interesting. If you say, are there any actual Patanjali yogis? There are Vedantic yogis. Swami Vivekananda is not actually a Patanjali yogi there. He's a Vedantic yogi we use the techniques as I said open up the box of Vedanta you will find hmm, made in China inside so all the techniques of yoga we have borrowed but we are not Patanjali yogis I am not a Patanjali yogi but we have borrowed the techniques of Veda of Patanjali yoga but are there any pure Patanjali yogis so those who want to attain enlightenment just by practicing yoga Patanjali yoga there are there is at least one ashram in a place called Madhupur uh, in Jharkhand which was not very far from where I sit. I never got a chance to go to that ashram, but some of my friends did. Our acharya, who taught us yoga sutras, he went there. These monks, they are dedicated for, and if you enter that, the first thing is that there is a picture of, depiction of Hiranyagarbha. And we say, ah, our old friend. (laughs) Now the head of the monastery, see, the more senior you become there, the more the restrictions are. So when you become the senior most, you go into a cave and you never come out again until you die. Once a week, you can talk to the head of the monastery. He comes to a hole in the cave. You can go to the hole and ask your question. You don't have to wait till next week. (laughs) At that time itself, he will answer your question. But only once a week. And our uh, teacher went there and he met the current head. Once you become a head, you are walled up in a cave. That's it. I'm sure there is no race up the corporate ladder there. <laughs> yeah. Om shanti 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 hari om tat sat shri Ram krishna rupanamas